0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, Carol Masser's on a boat somewhere. I'm Jason Kelly. So I came down to Washington. And who did I convince to sit with me for the next hour? None other than David Rubenstein. David it's great to be here with you. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming to Washington. Well, its uh, I would say it's great to be in Washington. It is really, really hot, although it's hot in New York, but Washington, as you know from being a longtime resident of the city, has sort of a special kind of heat and humidity this time of year.
1: Well, remember, uh, this was built on a swamp, more or less, many years ago, and uh, as for that reason, Washington didn't really exist in the summertime because before air conditioning, nobody
0: would wanna live here. Right, yeah, and you can certainly see why. We're gonna have a wide-ranging conversation over the next 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 hour or so, I'm so happy you're here. We're gonna talk a little bit about your new book. Speaking of history, uh, it's called The American Story, Conversations with Master Historians. We're gonna catch up with a historian you know very well later on in the hour, Michael Beschloss. We're gonna check in with Peter Coy, our economics editor. We're gonna hear from Josh Green, He's going to talk to us a little bit about the 2020 race and everything else that's going on. But in the meantime, since I have you here, sort of set the tone for me right now in the global economy. You talk to heads of state. You talk to big investors. You talk to your colleagues at the Carlyle Group, which you helped found 30-some-odd years ago. Uh, What's the mood?
1: Well... We have recessions in the United States on average every seven years. We're now more than 10 years into a growth period. So everybody's looking over their shoulder saying, you know, how much longer can this keep going on? And there's no doubt that growth has slowed down around the world. It's slowed down a little bit in the United States. And there's some concern over the tariff situation and there's some concern over Brexit. So the combination make, makes people nervous. So I don't see a recession today. I don't see a recession tomorrow. But at some point in my lifetime, there will be another recession. That's right.
0: Well, and you've seen a few uh, in your time. as you talk to your colleagues at at Carlisle, are they investing differently, investing with a little more caution, do you think?
1: We're always investing with caution, of yeah. course. But, uh, the prices are high. There's no doubt that prices are high. Traditionally, buyout people like to buy things at, let's say, seven, eight, nine times cash flow. Now, people are buying things at 12, 13, 14 times cash flow. That means the returns will probably be somewhat lower than we would prefer, though investors are willing to accept somewhat lower returns because it's hard to find good returns elsewhere.
0: Uh- the, the broader mood in Washington, it's a political town at the end of the day. You know that uh, as well as anyone. Uh, you got the president over at the White House talking in a very wide-ranging series of questions and answers today about U.S.-China trade especially. How is that sort of playing through in, in your estimation? We're actually talking about some real economic consequences it feels like now.
1: I think the president recognizes that it's a serious matter and he would like to resolve it as everybody would. I think there will be a resolution. I do not believe we will go through the next election without some type of resolution. Uh, remember, there are three parts to the China trade agreement. One is they buy more products, the Chinese buy more products from us. Two, we have greater market access to what uh, their markets allow us to sell. And three, they've changed some of their China 2025 policies so the government is not involved in artificial intelligence or, or, or other 5G. I think the first two are easier to resolve. The third is the hardest part. That's where they have foundered so far. But it's not impossible that you could reach an agreement on parts one and two and say, we'll deal with parts three right. next
0: year. Right. president wants a win. Right. Needs I, one.
1: I think both presidents want to yeah. win. I think both presidents would like to get this resolved because there are more important issues to resolve than this. So there are other things that they want to work on. So I do think they both would like to get an issue, uh, this issue resolved.
0: All right. So just since we're here in Washington, I have to ask you, almost inside of us, the Washington Monument's going to reopen, uh, largely thanks to uh, your help in not too long.
1: Well, the National Park Service did a great job. Uh, what happened was when the earthquake occurred, I did help uh, with some financial support, and the Congress did as well. But it turned out that there needed to be much more improvements to the mon- to the uh, elevator. It broke 24 times, so I put up some money to fix that. But then they had to have a security or uh, security arrangement put in so that uh, people can't go in there with the inappropriate kinds of things. So that's now it's now going to open on September the 19th, I believe it is. And uh, I, well, we can accommodate a lot of people. It's not as big as the Lincoln Memorial. You can't have as many people go in. right? But probably you can probably accommodate about 500,000 people a year. It's amazing uh, how long it's been closed at this point. It's been closed off and on for five years. But remember, uh, when it was first built, uh, it took about 50 years to get it built. It was started in 1832, the 100th anniversary of George Washington's birth, and didn't really finish until 1888, a typical Washington project, you might say, 50 years to build. (laughs) It's 555 and a half feet, and the reason it's that high is because the ancient Egyptians learned that when you build an obelisk, it will fall over if it's more than 10 times the size of the base. The base, in this case, is
0: 55 feet. Wow. A lot of science underneath that for sure. All right, so coming up, you're gonna stick around with me. You're gonna ask some good questions I know to Josh Green. He's gonna tell us a little bit about the political scene. We're gonna hear from Peter Coy as well. Uh, I wanna ask you in particular about what we might see from uh, Jackson Hole coming up in a few days. Your former colleague, uh, Jay Powell, get some thoughts uh, on that as well. So much more to come here on Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and David Rubenstein Right here on Bloomberg Radio.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg
0: Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Jason Kelly in Washington alongside David Rubenstein. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week up in New York. Josh Green, national correspondent. He is there taking stock of everything 2020. Josh, I read your piece today about what's going on with former vice president biden give us a sense of what's happening in 2020 land right now
3: well the news in 2020 land today there's a new cnn poll that came out that showed biden with uh really what i would describe as a commanding lead in the race and that's a bit of a surprise because Uh, although biden has led most polls since he got into the race he's gradually been bleeding support he's been attacked by other candidates this poll however shows that he's made a big leap forward in the last uh six weeks or so and so it's good news for biden at least in the short term it's good news for biden and biden's message that electability Mm -hmm. which is what he's running on is the thing that democratic voters need to focus on yes
1: i have a question about that Uh, in the debates, he's been uh, criticized for not being against some of the policies that President Obama pursued, but now don't seem as popular as they were then. Uh, how is Joe Biden handling that issue?
3: Is he going to distance himself from those policies or he's going to embrace President Obama? Well, he's been tied in a little bit of a knot about some of these policies. In general, he's he's tried to uh, connect himself to Obama and reminds voters constantly, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure is good political strategy, that he and Obama together, governed for eight years. However, the center of the Democratic Party has shifted substantially to the left. And we've seen on the debate stage and elsewhere, Biden struggling to explain older positions on uh, busing, race, criminal justice, these kinds of things. What the new poll says to me, however, is that those attacks really haven't landed with voters. They're not focused on what Joe Biden did, you know, 30, 40 years ago, they seem to trust him and believe that, at least right now, he is the best suited candidate in the field to be the Democratic nominee. And Josh, who moved
0: significantly other than Biden one way or the other in this poll?
3: Well, the big mover in this poll was Kamala Harris, California senator, who moved down substantially. We all remember in the first Democratic debate, she was the first one to really get in there and attack Biden and got a big bump in the polls uh, but that that bump has since disappeared and she is down now in, in sort of second tier status. Uh, so what the poll shows is that the, right now the race is between uh, uh, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Biden seems to be the candidate right. with a bit of momentum. It, it,
1: it seemed very interesting that if you take the 20 some candidates the three best known people at the beginning are now the three highest polling ones. So all the money spent all the campaigning to date hasn't really elevated anybody above the top three, uh, despite what you would have thought for all the money spent and all the campaigning. Why do you think that is?
3: You know, I, I think voters are looking for uh a known quantity, uh, a candidate they recognize and have some faith in that can go toe to toe with Donald Trump. I mean, I think that 2016 was a big wake up call. Most Democrats, uh, whether they were huge fans or not, thought Hillary Clinton was well qualified, elect uh, electable, expected her to win uh, the election. And when she lost, I think that it 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 instilled a kind of risk aversion in a lot of Democratic voters. You know, maybe this isn't the year that we want to take a chance on someone like. Andrew Yang or some, you know, red state senator uh, who may have appeal but wouldn't necessarily coalesce uh, the Obama voters who, 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 who won two terms for, for a Democrat uh, in the 2000s. Let's go with somebody who's got a clear message, who's got a, a real public profile and has shown that they can go toe to toe with Trump. And pretty much yeah. from the get go, that's been Biden, Warren, Sanders, and maybe to a slightly lesser extent, yeah. uh, Harris and Pete Buttigieg.
1: Now, today, I think, is the first day that Joe Biden has his ads on in Iowa. And the ads, ads that I've seen uh, basically embrace President Obama, as I think he should, because it was a successful administration in the view of many Democrats. So do you think that uh, President Obama will do any more to inch towards uh, endorsing or supporting or saying nice things about Biden or he's going to wait until the
3: Primaries are over. No, I think Obama has been pretty clear that he is going to stay on the sidelines, let Democrats choose their own nominee, and not weigh in. Certainly, as soon as it becomes clear that there is a nominee or or someone who's mathematically likely to carry it, I think at that point you'd see Obama weigh in. Uh, But he's made a real effort, uh, despite Biden's uh, consistent attempts to associate himself with Obama, not to reciprocate publicly in a way that would suggest he's got his thumb on the scale.
1: Now, the favorite game in Washington is always who's going to be on the ticket with whoever the nominee is. So if Joe Biden were the nominee, who do you think he'd pick? If Bernie Sanders were the nominee, who would he pick? And if
3: uh, Elizabeth Warren were the nominee, who would she pick?
0: All in 30 seconds. Tough sir.
3: questions. Well, I think, you know, usually what you want in the ticket is balance. So Biden, were he to become the nominee, could pick someone like a, a Kamala Harris, a Stacey Abrams, who would uh, pull people from the left side of the party, get uh, African-Americans in particular excited about the ticket. They really weren't excited in 2016. Uh, for Warren, you might see the same kind of balance. And if it's Bernie Sanders, gosh, who knows? Maybe he goes far left and picks Warren and you get a Warren Sanders
0: ticket and Wall Street freaks out, but we'll have to wait and see. We will. We'll be asking you all of those questions over the next 18 months, that's for sure. Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek, joining us from New York in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Stay with us, Jason Kelly, David Rubenstein, here in Washington. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek.
4: This is
0: Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Back home in New York, Peter Coy, economics editor for Bloomberg Business Week. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. And Peter, so much going on with the Fed, so much going on in the economy. Look ahead to Jackson Hole for us.
4: What's top of your agenda? Obviously, um, we want to know what Jay Powell is going to be saying on Friday Uh, The topic is challenges in monetary policy, but what everybody wants to know is, will the Fed keep cutting interest rates? They cut a quarter point in July, turning around from the increases they'd had, nine quarter point increases up until then. So he described it then as sort of a mid-course correction. Uh, In other words, not the beginning of a long-term downtrend, but he was a little bit vague about what that meant. People will want to know. Uh, how many more rate cuts might there be in 2019? The market is sort of penciling in at least two, maybe three.
1: So, do you think that uh, it's really likely that J Powell is going to announce anything definitive? Because very often there's a buildup to what the Fed. Uh, chairman says at Jackson Hole but often there's a disappointment because they talk in fed speak and no one can really figure out what they're really saying so do you expect a fed speak kind of speech or something
4: very definitive no it is definitely going to be one the the fed speak kinda talk it's an academic conference and it'll be about the big picture and Powell uh, you know isn't gonna like tip his hand too much but I guess the point is that People read the tea leaves. They're all Kremlinologists now, and they're looking for the tiniest little indication uh, of, of what policy might mean. There's also going to be a lot, of, uh, a lot of action on the sidelines between the speeches where the reporters who are covering the event, including Bloomberg's own, will be uh, trying to ferret out any information they can because, you know, the Fed is the most important central bank in the world. The interest rates that are set in Washington affect interest rates all over the world. Well, and you're going to
0: – we're also going to hear from another of your former colleagues, David Randall Quarles, uh, out there uh, as well. As someone, David, who you know, worked in the White House, worked on uh, economic policy, domestic economic policy, uh, what do you make of the, of the current sort of milieu around the Fed versus the administration?
1: Well, there's no doubt that the Fed has got an enormous amount of attention uh, recently, and both Randy Quarles and Jay Powell did work at Carlisle for a number of years. They're both very talented uh, individuals. I think that my own observation is that typically you don't see a lot of definitive answers coming out of, uh, out of Jackson Hole because I think the Fed chair likes to make it clear that he's not the only decision maker. It's the FOMC, which makes interest rate right. decisions, and I think he doesn't like to get too far out in front of them. So they like to make decisions to collaboratively, and then the Fed chair or somebody will appropriate will announce it and explain them. But I think it's a good time. Everybody has fun out in Jackson Hole. It's, they like to ride horses. They, the weather's great. Uh, Jim Wolfenson often hosts people there at his home there. So it's a great time, but I don't think you're going to see anything that's that
0: definitive. And so, Peter, what's your latest read on what we're hearing from the president as recently as today? He wants a 100 basis point uh, cut. How is that playing through the markets? How is that playing with all the economists you're talking to?
4: You know, we're not seeing a lot of reaction in the market. And a couple of reasons for that. One is that he's been on this theme for quite a while now, so it's not really new. The fact that he's being specific about saying he's wanting at least a full percentage point is a bit fresh But um, Jay Powell, uh, as uh, uh, David Rubenstein just mentioned, is, you know, a kind of guy who's not easily pushed around, and he's made it quite clear that uh, he doesn't base interest rates on political decision-making criteria. He's going to run what's right for the economy. So what would change the outlook for interest rates would be more a change in the real economy rather than a change in the verbiage from the White House. I think that the,
1: the Fed chair has previously indicated that he's got flexibility in going to lower interest rates again. Presumably the FOMC is supportive of that. I, I think sometimes when uh, there's political pressure on them, it makes it more difficult in some ways to look like you're not responding to political pressure. So that whether that is the case or not, I would not be surprised if there was an interest rate cut. Uh, before the end of the year, and I think the market is assuming at least
4: a fifty basis point interest rate cut. Right. Yes. Uh, the the market's pricing in somewhere between fifty and seventy five basis points by the end of twenty nineteen. What's the economic story we're not paying attention to, Peter Coy? Ooh, gee, I'm not paying attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> you got me on that one. All uh, right. I well, I, I'll, I will say something though. I'm writing a sort of a positive story for this issue of the magazine. Yeah and saying that uh, Trump himself seems to be quite, quite concerned about a recession uh, coming on his watch that would spoil his re-election campaign. And that is why he's pushing the Fed so hard. That's also why he's talking about a possible payroll tax cut, why he seems to be looking to make some kind of deal with China, you know, backing off on part of the— tariffs that were supposed to take effect in September. I think in spite of what he says about being confident in the future of the economy, in reality, I think he is concerned. Right. All right. Peter Coy, we're going to leave it there. Economics editor for
0: Bloomberg Businessweek. Looking forward to reading that story in the upcoming edition. And just ahead, we're going to catch up with an old friend of David Rubenstein, Michael Beschloss, author, historian. He's going to join us. I'm talking about... So Jason Kelly here with you in Washington, D.C. My very special guest host, David Rubenstein. He's got a book coming out in late October. It's called The American Story, Conversations with Master Historians, and... One of the folks he lined up to uh, give it some praise, to blurb it, as they say in the business, is Michael Beschloss, author, historian, author himself of nine books on presidential history, including most recently, Presidential Courage and The Conquerors. He joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks a lot. My pleasure.
0: All right. So I'll ask the question so he doesn't have to. uh, What'd you make of this book? Uh, I thought the
2: book was spectacular, The American Story, and, you know, we historians think of David Rubenstein as someone who was a, a born historian. He was sort of sidetracked to the law and venture capital for a few decades, and now we've got him back, and this book really shows it.
1: Well, actually, Michael himself was sidetracked for a while. He went to Harvard Business School. How many historians do you know went to Harvard Business School? I think that was to please his family, but his real love was history as well.
2: Well, I think that's right. So uh, we overlap a little bit, and uh, in proof of packaging, David and I have been great friends for 30 years.
1: So Michael, um, I appreciate your kind words about the book, and I have interviewed Michael well, as, many as times. Sam, and
2: Sam Rayburn would say that kind words have the added advantage of being true. <laughs>
1: but uh, Michael has a new book himself, uh, which I've interviewed uh, him on, The Presence of War, and you might describe, Michael, what that book is about.
2: Uh, That book is about uh, presidents who have fought major wars from James Madison all the way through Richard Nixon, and the fact that as time went on, presidents got more and more power to wage wars almost single-handedly, and so the result is that presidents nowadays are a lot more powerful than they were at the beginning, and maybe more so than the the, uh, people who wrote the Constitution originally intended
1: and the last time we actually had a declaration of war was when?
2: Uh it was 1942, uh, when there was a declaration of war by Congress against a couple of countries in Central Europe, not long after Pearl Harbor. And ever since then, as David knows, uh, there has never been a declaration of war, although there have been one or two wars
0: since then, I think. Right. And so, Michael, I know that this is the sort of question that you as a historian get a lot. Uh, How do you sort of keep track of things that are moving so fast in the present and apply what you know as a historian to try and make sense of it in real time? Or or do you just sort of throw up your hands and say, I'm going to need a little bit of time to digest it? It's
2: a really good question. You know, sometimes you can see things that are happening in real time and they would remind me or remind one of the other great historians, in, or I should say one of the great historians in David's book, like David McCullough or Ron Chernow or John Beecham or Norris Curtis Goodwin or Taylor Branch or Robert Caro or others. And we've all talked about this. And sometimes we'll watch, for instance, President Trump or President Obama do something that reminds us of something in history. But that, there's a difference between that and being able to in real time, say this is the way that President Trump will be seen in history. This is the way that President Obama will be seen in history. I believe that it takes about 40 years or more to begin to get a fix on a president uh, in history because of two things. One is it usually takes that long to begin to get access to the kind of sources that show us what the president was like behind the scenes, memcons, emails perhaps you know other documents but more important than that i think it takes at least 40 years to get the kind of hindsight that allows us to see what about a president was important in the, in the light of history later on and what turned out to have been maybe an obsessive concern of people of his generation but turned out later on not to be so important so that's the difference between yeah. looking at a president so, in Michael. history versus looking at him in real time
1: as a presidential historian, I would uh, you would say the greatest American president was who?
2: Uh, I would say probably a tie between Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. Uh, they had different tasks at different times. I think it's hard to compare. Probably a little bit of that comes from the fact that I grew up in Illinois. Uh, David went to school at the University of Chicago uh, for law, so maybe you're a little bit affected by that time you spent in Illinois,
1: David? Yes, I would say Abraham Lincoln is the person who held the country together. I'm not sure anybody else at that time would have worked so hard to keep the country together. It would have been easier to just say to the South, goodbye.
0: So would you say, yeah. would you agree with those two? The There's
1: no doubt. Um, and I think Washington would be second because he created the presidency, essentially, and that many of the things he did, we still live with. So I'd say right. beyond those two, uh, you can debate many different people, FDR, TR, But I think those two are in a league by themselves. 20th century, Michael Beschloss,
0: who's been the tops?
2: Uh, 20th century, I would say FDR conquered the Great Depression, uh, won a global war and defeated the imperial Japanese and the fascism of Germany uh, and Italy. But, you know, the one thing, there are these great surveys of, you know, which president was 27th best and which one was 12th best. Eastman does a great one. Others do as well. There are surveys of political scientists and historians. I think it's a great exercise, but I tend to shy away from them because it's hard for me to compare, you know, for instance, Thomas Jefferson and Lewis and Clark to, uh, you know, let's say, Theodore Roosevelt and the Panama Canal. Different times, different achievements.
0: Right. All right. Michael Beschloss, author and historian, joining us on the phone from Washington. You can check out his blurb on a new book that's coming out, uh, put together by my co-host David Rubenstein. It's called The American Story, Conversations with Master Historians, out in late October. We're going to have you back to uh, talk about that. So, 30 seconds, final thoughts uh, on the day. What's happening in the world, David? I think the world um, survived today.
1: Um, I think the sun will come up again tomorrow in the east. So I think uh, nothing terrible happened today so far, um, except perhaps my appearance here. I don't know if I did as good a job as you wanted, but I did you the did best a, I could.
0: You did a great job, and I know you're hitting the road, uh, as you tend to do. You spent a couple hundred uh, days on the road. I know you'll be in Europe, uh, but hope to have you back very soon. We look forward to the new episode of your show, The David Sun Show. On Bloomberg Television tomorrow. Well, for David Rubenstein, I'm Jason Kelly signing off from the nation's capital. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week right here on Bloomberg Radio.